This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer, on air, online or via your ABC Listen app. It's always great to be with you. Now today on the program, a unique discussion between a former Prime Minister and a leading American political scientist. Recently, I hosted the US Secretary of State at a Centre for Independent Studies event at the New South Wales State Library. All of the things we do around the world are things that we constantly evaluate. We, we want to make sure that we're protecting our partners, protecting American interests. Uh, I think our efforts to deploy our resources, our defence resources, to create uh, deterrence and stability around the world are something we're always looking at. Mr Secretary, how worried should Australians be about the rise of China as a great power? Uh, it's really straightforward. Uh, we, we have, in the United States, deep economic relationship with China. We think there's real opportunity there, but we have to be very, very uh, careful. America sat, I think the world, frankly, watched for too long. Uh, we were asleep at the switch as China began to behave in ways that it had not done before. Uh, so whether that's efforts to steal data across networks or militarize the South China Sea, something President Xi promised the world he would not do, uh, those are the kind of things that I think everyone needs to have their eyes wide open with respect to. The United States certainly does. And we welcome China's continued growth, uh, but it's got to be right. It's got to be fair. It's got to be equitable. It's got to be reciprocal. They have to behave in a way that ensures that the value sets that Australia and the United States have continue to be the rules by which the entire world engages. China's capacity, the People's Liberation Army's capacity mm. to do exactly what they're doing is a direct result of the trade relationships that they developed. They, they grew their country on the backs of a set of unfair trade rules. Some say one of our leading strategic thinkers. Let me put Hugh White's argument to you. China buys double what our next largest customer, Japan, buys from us. The Chinese economy will grow much bigger than America's in coming years. Our China ties saved us from the global financial crisis. As a result, and this is Hugh White's argument, Canberra would be unwise to support Washington in a confrontation with China that America probably cannot win. Mike Pompeo. Yeah, look, um, you, can, you can sell your soul for a pile of soybeans or you can protect your people. Our, our mission set is to actually do both. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo with me on August 4 and you can find a link to the entire transcript on our website. Now, we all too often hear that Australia is a typical middle power that benefits from the status quo in the region. How often do you hear that? We want to keep enjoying the best of both worlds, unconstrained trade with China under the US security umbrella. And that situation has served this country well for the past quarter century or so. Anything that disturbs that regional equilibrium is self-evidently not in our national interest. Now, that's been and remains the Canberra policy consensus. But can China rise peacefully? And if China can't rise peacefully, and if the strategic and economic competition rivalry between Washington and Beijing intensifies, as it has in the last week... What should we in Australia do? Well, we have the right guests to talk about this. Kevin Rudd, of course, was Prime Minister of Australia from 2007 to 2010, and again in 2013. He's also a former Foreign Minister and Australian diplomat who was stationed in Beijing in the 1980s. These days, he's President of the Asia Society in New York, where he joins us via Skype. Hi there, Kevin. 
Good to be on the program, Tom. And John Mearsheimer is one of America's distinguished foreign policy intellectuals. He's a professor of political science at the University of Chicago and author of the classic The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. He's in Sydney this week as a guest of the think tank that I head, the Centre for Independent Studies. Welcome back to Australia, John. Thank you, Tom. I'm glad to be here. Now, let's start with our former PM. Kevin, you have a distinguished record as a long-time supporter of Western engagement with China, yet the relationship between Washington and Beijing clearly has deteriorated dramatically in recent times. Trade, currency, strategic issues, we've really witnessed that this week. What's happened? Well, on the background point, first, Tom, yes, I've long been supportive of a view that in post-78 China, the wisest course of action, given China's departure from previous cultural revolution norms under Mao, uh, was to open the doors to uh, economic and wider engagement. But secondly, it's never been an unconditional engagement. You will remember from my own time as Prime Minister, Tom, we brought down defence white papers, mm. which challenged China's expanding military budget expanded the capacity of the Royal Australian Navy, disagreed with China on a range of human rights cases, as well as, of course, rejecting a number of uh, quite critical foreign investment applications from China as well. It's never been a simple equation of mm. engagement equals agreement, disengagement equals you know, conflict and war. But on your broader point about the US-China relationship, three big things I think have happened. One, it's simply China's critical mass it's become much bigger so that the size of the strategic, military, economic, foreign policy and now technological footprint is much bigger than 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, and as a consequence, no country in the world, including the United States, can either ignore this or regard it as a passing phenomenon. The second, I think, is really important too. That's the rise of Xi Jinping. Mm. Xi Jinping has abandoned previous uh, doctrines of Deng Xiaoping of hide your strength, bide your time, never take the lead, and embarked upon a much more assertive Chinese international diplomacy and economic diplomacy as well. And the third factor is the United States under President Trump has now reacted. And so as a consequence of, let's call it this untidy trade war, uh, which is roiling markets at present, and an unfolding technology war, uh, we now have a completely changed set of circumstances. Okay. Now, uh, John Mearsheim, I'll bring you in here. What do you make of Kevin Rudd's uh, explanation for the deterioration in the relationship? Or have we in the West just been naive? November marks the 30th anniversary since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, you remember Francis Fukuyama, your old friend, declaring the end of history. Uh, China hasn't followed the script. I agree with a lot of Kevin's analysis in terms of what's happening right now, but this is why I opposed engagement and bringing China into the WTO. The basic idea behind engagement was that we would get China deeply enmeshed in the international economy. It would become much more prosperous, and it would become, in Robert Zellick's terms, a responsible stakeholder. My view is that as China grew more powerful economically, it would translate that economic might into military might, and it would try to dominate East Asia. So pursuing a policy of engagement, to use Kevin's rhetoric, which increased its critical mass, just made it that much more dangerous. It wasn't going to become a responsible stakeholder. And now you're seeing the manifestation of that policy 
taking place. And as he made clear, and it's clear to anybody who reads the newspapers, yeah. this story has not had a happy ending. So your line then is that it was a mistake for the Americans to allow China into the World Trade Organization. Now, funnily enough, 20 years ago, Kevin, you may remember this was 1999, you were a Labor opposition backbencher, and you wrote an article for me. <laughs> I was the opinion editor of the Financial Review. Do you remember those days, Kevin? I do. These were happier times. <laughs> and you wrote clearly that the Clinton administration had made a big mistake by, it was a dumbest decision to date by the Clinton administration, you said, uh, by not allowing China into the WTO. The Clinton administration did follow your advice a year later in 2000. In retrospect, were you both wrong? Absolutely not. You see, the problem with, let's call it uh, John's uh, general, let's call it offensive realist framework for international relations theory and practice, is he would need to ask himself this as well. What was the counterfactual? What would China have done had the world, led by the United States, shut its doors completely to the China emerging from the Cultural Revolution? It's entirely conceivable to argue that we would have then turned China into a long-term uh, North Korea. That is, uh, one which was simply an isolationist mm. state and one with increasingly radicalised politics. Of course, the other thing which has happened as a result of China's entry into the WTO is that the global economy has rapidly expanded. The growth of China's economy has been the single largest driver of global growth uh, since the early 2000s. And thirdly, if it wasn't for Chinese growth, then, frankly, what we had in the global financial crisis wouldn't have been the great global recession. It probably would have ended up as a global depression. But the bottom line is this. It is therefore incumbent on those who support an engagement framework when parties such as China, in our judgment, don't adhere to the rules, to challenge them. That's why the WTO has dispute resolution mechanisms. That's why we have bilateral dispute resolution mechanisms. And so I think if there's been an error, it is simply through a lack of resolution in the past by a range of governments, including in Washington, which was distracted by what was going on in the Middle East, the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, to bring China to account when there were particular violations of international trade law. Okay, well, how would you respond to that, uh, John Mearsheimer? Because if we didn't engage with China, as Kevin Rudd just says, uh, surely we would have just fed China's angry resentments and we would have hurt prospects for a, a rapidly growing economic growth rates around the world. Well, Kevin's basic argument is that the alternative to admitting China into the WTO was to shut it off completely. That was his word, completely. And in effect, turn it into North Korea, isolate it. And that's not what we were going to do. That was not possible. It's important to remember that the United States had a deep-seated interest in fueling the Chinese economic growth in the 1980s when China was an ally mm. of the United States against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. The critical issue is what do we do after the Cold War ends and the Soviet threat disappears? And my argument is that you want to do everything you can to slow down Chinese economic growth. You don't want to fuel it. You don't want China to become a behemoth in the year 2019. You want it to be much less powerful today than it really is. And that's why I think it was a mistake to admit it into the WTO. Now, Kevin says that if we had pursued this policy uh, in 2008, when we had the world financial crisis, that things might have turned out much more badly had China mm -hmm. not been as powerful as it was at the time. Uh, it's impossible for me to say whether mm -hmm. that's true or not. But 
we now face a dilemma, which is that China is remarkably powerful. It's getting more and more powerful, and we have this intense security competition between the United States and China that's likely to cause a lot of trouble for the international economy and for international security in the years ahead. Kevin Rudd. Well, I think one of the problems with the general, quote, juggernaut, unquote, assumption about either the Chinese economy and the Chinese state is it fails to take into account the inherent weaknesses within the Chinese system itself. On the political system, as those of us who have studied the history of the Communist Party are well familiar, um, there is always a brittleness at times of leadership transition and a continued brittleness in Chinese leadership politics. But more fundamentally right now on the economic question, uh, Chinese growth rates have been slowing for several years now because of the unresolved debates within China's domestic political economy about the future role of the party and the future role of the private sector, which now represents about 61% of GDP. And one final point about let's call it the juggernaut assumption about the future Chinese economy, is the three big drivers of long-term economic growth. Tom, as we understand from the domestic economic discourse in Australia, the Henry principles, that's population, participation and productivity. Well, China's population is about to peak. Uh, its workforce uh, is actually in decline and productivity growth has been stalling for some time. Mm. And that's before you count the budgetary costs of China's long-term date with demographic destiny and the aging of the population. So therefore, I think when realists such as John point to the inexorable and continuing and almost linear rise of China, I think we need to temper those assumptions uh, with a whole bunch of other data points which could take China in different directions altogether. My guests are John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago and the former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, President of the Asia Society. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Okay, let's just assume that these uh, assumptions are right, John, and China's rise continues unabated and it really starts to dominate the region. John Mearsheimer, how then should Canberra respond to a rising China? Well, Canberra is in a very difficult situation because from an economic perspective, China is of immense importance and Australia has all sorts of incentives to continue to deal with China economically. But on the other hand, Australia has historically depended on the United States for its security, at least since World War II. Situation where you have a serious security competition between the United States and China, I think Australia has very powerful incentives to side with the United States. So which way will the Australians go? Will they side with China for economic or prosperity reasons, or will they side with the United States for security reasons? I think the answer is quite clear, that Canberra will side with the United States. And it's been a big issue this week with the visit of the Secretary of State and the Defence Secretary to Sydney, and I hosted this uh, event at the uh, the New South Wales State Parliament on Sunday, and the question about whether Washington, if it wanted to station mid-range missiles in Darwin, what do you think a Canberra should do? I think it's too early to tell. Uh, I think we have to see what the United States wants to do with regard to deploying mobile ballistic missiles. And it's very important to note here, Tom, we're not talking about nuclear armed missiles. We're mm. talking about conventional, conventional. missiles. Mm -hmm. And from an American point of view, there are very powerful incentives to deploy conventional mobile missiles. The question is, where are they going to be deployed? And the main 
possible locations are South Korea, Japan, Australia, Guam, mm -hmm. and the Philippines. And it remains to be seen whether or not it makes sense for Australia to deploy those missiles on its soil. These missiles have a 5,500-kilometre range. Shanghai to Darwin is something like 5,000 kilometres in range. Uh, Kevin Rudd, how would Beijing feel if Canberra had missiles in Darwin? Well, Tom, you know me long enough uh, to know that I'm not in the business of uh, answering hypotheticals. <laughs> Come on, now. And, you're no um, longer Prime Minister. And, and Yeah, but hang on. Let's just unpack this a little bit. I would proceed very, very cautiously, in fact, as Prime Minister Morrison is doing, because whatever our relationship is with our great and powerful friends in Washington, uh, being sucked in step by step into a whole bunch of Taiwan-related contingencies at a military level, shall I say, may lack wisdom. John Mearsheimer. I think uh, what's driving the Americans here is that the Chinese have a huge ballistic missile force, mobile intermediate-range missiles that can hit targets uh, like Japan, South Korea, Guam, and Australia. And the United States wants a similar capability. And the United States wants a similar capability in large part because its airfields and its aircraft carriers are reaching the point where they're highly vulnerable to those Chinese ballistic missiles. So what the United States is looking to do is to emphasize building mobile ballistic missiles of their own that are hard for the Chinese to hit and also to, to deploy more cruise missiles on submarines because submarines and mobile intermediate range ballistic missiles are more survivable than aircraft and aircraft carriers which are vulnerable to all those intermediate range ballistic missiles coming out of China. And again, it's important to emphasize here, we're not talking about nuclear weapons, we're talking about conventional uh, missiles. And I think this, by the way, is the principal reason that the United States withdrew uh, from the INF Treaty. It wasn't because of Russian violations, it's because the Americans want to build mobile intermediate range missiles in East Asia. Now, I asked uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo about the security obligations for Australia. Does Washington still believe unequivocally that the ANZUS alliance obliges Canberra to America's side in the event of a conflict? The between? ANZUS treaty is un unambiguous. <clears throat> okay, but 15 years ago, Minister, your predecessor, Alexander Downer, uh, said uh, in Beijing to an ABC journalist, quote, Washington could not expect Australia to automatically side with the US if China attacked Taiwan. Is that your view? You can expect me to be responsible for a lot, Tom, but I'm not sure you can expect me to be responsible for Alexander Downer's statements 15 years ago. <laughs> that was Foreign Minister Maurice Payne and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo with me last week. Uh, Kevin Rudd, uh, does the US alliance oblige Canberra to America's side in the event of a conflict? The terms from recollection of the ANZUS Treaty um, relate to either the armed forces of either of the treaty partners being attacked in the Pacific area or their metropolitan territory. And as you would recall, uh, Tom, that was why we invoked it at the time of the attacks on uh, the United States um, by Al-Qaeda uh, and on September 11, because it was an attack on the metropolitan territory of the United States. But there is a caveat, which is our constitutional processes. Mm. And therefore, in our case, uh, that would require a cabinet-level process. The overwhelming sentiment, I think, on both the Australian Labor Party's part and the Australian Conservative Party's uh, has always been in the past and likely to be in the future uh, to support the United States. But the caveat 
is the political one deliberately inserted in the treaty mm. at the time at the insistence of the American side. And by the way, before you go on to the Taiwan contingency, again, I don't answer hypotheticals. <laughs> and that's exactly <laughs> what Alexander Downer should have done 15 years ago, and you gave him a hard time over that, if my memory serves me correct. You could say that, Tom. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> now, look, uh, meanwhile, it's been three years since The Hague, the International Tribunal, ruled against China's illegal conduct in the South China Sea. Now, over the weekend, Australia, the US, Japan, they issued a trilateral statement calling out Beijing over its, quote, coercive unilateral actions in the South China Sea. They're supporting cooperation in the Pacific. John Mearsheimer, what's in it for Australia to do these freedom of navigation patrols through the South China Sea? Well, I think it's in Australia's interest to let the United States do those patrols and to, uh, in effect, pass the buck to the Americans in this particular case. Uh, I think that Australia has a deep-seated interest in being allied with the United States for security purposes, but Australia has to be very careful that it doesn't get dragged into any conflicts uh, that are not in its interest. Uh, Kevin Rudd, should we be conducting follow-up freedom of navigation patrols through the South China Sea, as your former colleague Kim Beasley recommends? I tend to uh, have a view that the United States itself has yet to work out, John, what its strategy is. Uh, despite all the public rhetoric from the Trump administration, in terms of the operational behaviour of uh, Indo-Pacific Command in the South China Sea, I do not see any fundamental change in US behaviour. Why there would be deep reservations, I think, on the part of many in Canberra to go in lockstep with UN FONOPS, as that's called in the trade, mm. Freedom of Navigation Operations, uh, is because... Uh, many in Canberra have doubts that the U.S. has developed a comprehensive strategy on this because its own behaviours in response to what China has done have been somewhat all over the place. So a lack of a comprehensive strategy. And, of course, remember, a lot of uh, the critics said that the Obama administration had pivoted away from the pivot. So are there real doubts about American coherence and also staying power? John Mearsheimer. Well, I think that... Uh just with regard to Kevin's point, I think this is absolutely true. This is how great powers behave. It's why international mm. law, in the end, does not matter that much when it comes to issues of peace and war. The Americans haven't signed the Law of the Sea Treaty. Yes, and, and, and the fact is that countries like Australia and Japan are, for the most part, law-abiding citizens, whereas the United States and the Chinese often are, but sometimes are not. That's just the way international politics works. Uh, but I think that what's going on here is that the U.S.-China competition is in its early stages, and the rules of the road are being worked out. Mm -hmm. There's no question that we don't have a clear understanding of what the rules are. And in fact, if you think back to the early years of the Cold War, what we had to do, the Soviets and the Americans, is figure out what the rules of the road were on things like Berlin. It was not clear initially. So there's no doubt that the United States is feeling its way around, as are the Chinese. And it's possible in this situation that you could end up with the two sides clashing. Okay, this is a work in progress, I get that, but what about my other question about American staying power, because there are real doubts in the region? The United States is, 
has tremendous staying power. It's going to be in this fight. It, there's no question about that in my mind. The United States is not going home. Just look at what the Trump administration is doing vis-a-vis -vis China at this point in time. And all you have to do is look at the historical record. The United States does not tolerate peer competitors. We took on Imperial Germany, Imperial Japan, Nazi Germany, and the former Soviet Union in the 20th century. We tried to contain all of them, and we were successful. And indeed, we ended up putting them all on the scrap heap of history. But all the available polling evidence indicates the Americans are tired of the world, they're suffering from foreign policy fatigue. Remember, this is how Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump did so well in 2016. The United States shows no signs of moving away from its global role. The United States is involved in every nook and cranny on the planet, and there's nothing that indicates that that's going to change. And as China continues to rise, the propaganda machine in the United States will start to work full force to create this image of a Chinese threat, and the American public will go along with dealing with China. Kevin Rudd, former Defence Secretary Robert Gates uh, has warned that Washington's polarisation dysfunction, that's the greatest threat that America faces. He actually says, quote, I think the greatest national security threat to this country at this point is the two square miles that encompasses the Capitol building and the White House. Now, to the extent that he's right, does that mean you have serious doubts about US staying power in Asia? Well, I'll leave Bob Gates um, to his own rhetorical flourishes. But on your fundamental point about, let's call it, U.S. strategic staying power, mm -hmm. there's some mathematics at play here. Uh, going back to our earlier part of the conversation, the economic relativities between China and the United States have changed radically. But it's a variable feast within that. Trade, China is the largest um, trading country in the world. Foreign direct investment, that's still the United States. Capital markets, overwhelmingly the United States. Technology, largely the United States, but China rising fast. Then you go to the military and whether it's, let's forget about nukes for the time being and simply go to conventional weaponry. Um, China has not put a navy to sea in armed conflict uh, since 1895 when it fought Japan and lost. Uh, the People's Liberation Army Navy has never fought a significant naval action uh, against the formidable institutional experience of the United States Navy. It's a variable feast, which is why, for example, I often part company with the almost determinist conclusions of Hugh White in the Australian domestic political context, who basically sees this as linear, China up, US down, um, everyone man the lifeboats. It's infinitely more complex than that. Um, on the fundamental question, though, that you pose, Tom, which is what is America's underlying capabilities to one's side, fundamental political resolve to remain the global superpower into the 21st century? Where I would part company with John Mearsheimer is that I've lived in the United States now for four years. This is the subliminal debate, both in the Democrats and the Republicans. It's been going on for a long time. President Trump, for example, against America's historical commitments to the world, questions the validity of alliances, questions whether American troops should be in Korea or Europe, on the question of the World Trade Organization, another American construct, questions whether it should continue to exist or the global free trade should exist. And then on human rights, part of the, um, shall I say, the third pillar of the US liberal international order from 44, 45 onwards, uh, he barely mentions those terms. So this is very much a an unfolding and unclear debate 
where I'm a little more skeptical than what John Mearsheimer says about America's long-term resolve, but I'm not into the, shall I say, the US is finished school, which is very much the Hugh White conclusion. And on that note, and just to wrap things up, uh, John Mearsheimer, you are debating uh, Professor Hugh White at Canberra's Hyatt Hotel this week. How would you respond to Kevin Rudd's point there, which is in a way in between you and Hugh White on American staying power? Well, I, I obviously disagree with Kevin uh, in that I think that the United States will remain in East Asia and indeed it will pivot to East Asia. I think if the United States has to cut its defense budget anywhere or cut its commitments anywhere, it will cut them in the Middle East because it will have to redouble its efforts in East Asia to contain China unless the Chinese economy runs into all those problems that Kevin discussed earlier in the program, which I hope is the case. And I hope we don't have to redouble our efforts in East Asia. And there is no intense security competition between the United States and China. John, Kevin, a terrific conversation to be continued. Thanks so much, both of you, for being on Between the Lines today. Thanks for having us on the program. Yes, Tom, thank you much. John Mearsheimer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago and former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who's the President of the Asia Society in New York. Well, that's it for this week's show. What a show, eh? Now, remember, if you'd like to hear today's program again and other past episodes, including our recent discussion with Conrad Black about Boris Johnson, just go to our homepage at abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. And, of course, you can always subscribe to the podcast via the ABC Listen app. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.